Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. I'm the Vernomatic, and welcome to this week's show. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There you'll find direct links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, however you're listening to these podcasts. While you're there, download some past shows, subscribe, review. That kind of stuff helps the bottom line. Sign up for our email list. There you'll receive weekly updates on new shows, merch promos, and free giveaways. Tonight, I welcome back to the show Metal Mayhem ROC show contributors and metal historians Ian O'Rourke and Metal Walt. We're doing a series called The History of Metal. Tonight, we're highlighting the year 1974. Basically, what we're going to do, we're reflecting back on what the hard rock and heavy metal landscape was like at the time, revisiting albums released that year, introducing new bands that debuted, and just basically a fun, informative discussion. We mix in some music, we get the commentary of both Walt and Ian, and, you know, just have, like I said, have a cool discussion. As always, we encourage feedback from you, the listeners. We welcome fact-checking, both your opinions and takes on these bands, as we take a look back at the year 1974. So I'm real excited tonight to have back to the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast from Central New York co-lead singer and co-lead guitarist of the rock band Motorlord, Ian O'Rourke. Ian, welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. Vernomatic, how you doing, brother? Good to be back again. Good. I'm doing well, thanks. And from the bowels of New Jersey, Metal Mayhem ROC correspondent, Metal Walt. Hey, Walt, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Hey, John. Hi, Ian. Happy to be back and looking forward to 1974. 1974. It was a great year all around. I think I was seven years old. My Dolphins were going to Super Bowls. The rock and roll and metal world was brewing really well. Last week, we had 1973, and uh, it was the start of this series, and we were able to cover, really, the pioneers of the hard rock, heavy metal movement. Bands like uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Uriah Heep, God, the list goes on and on. Well, get us up to speed on um, some of the bands that we covered on the first episode, what they're doing in 74. Yeah, so I think if uh, if you recall in our recap of where we ended on 73, some of the conclusions were there were several new bands on the horizon. They were about to have releases prepared for 74, but they were in those formative stages of maybe recording or just forming with the band members and maybe getting out in the live setting. So a couple of the bands that started in 73 that you saw come actually to life in 74, some really big names. I mean, you had Kiss, you had uh, Rush, Judas Priest, and Bad Company would be what I would say the top four for 
debut bands that year. Um, and in fact, for the situation of Kiss, they actually put out two albums, their debut album and then Hotter Than Hell. There was also, you know, a big change in the camp of one of the, the giants of heavy metal, Deep Purple. They went through a major lineup change. And, um, and also, as a result of that, uh, brought in a whole new sound of the band. And they also, in 74, released two albums. So it was a, it was a big year. Why, why did Ian Gillen leave and Coverdale and Glenn Hughes got into the band? Um, I think it was a matter of burnout, as we mentioned. And I think their, their release in 73 was, uh, you know, one of the, let's say, not the most memorable ones. I think they were on the road for five straight years. And I think it was a matter of the egos of Ian Gillen and Richie Blackmore coming to the table. Um, I think Blackmore also showed an interest in going, let's say, to a more melodic way. And I think it was just became camps in the band. And I think as a result of that, um, the Gillen Glover uh, Mark II lineup, the classic lineup, exited. And um, in came two new members. Again, you remember Glenn Hughes, you know, he kind of debuted as a younger kid in, uh, in the band Trapeze. And um, he was the singer and bass player of that band. And, uh, you know, again, they were another group out of the UK. So there were definitely connections there. And I think David Coverdale at the time was maybe an unknown. Um, but they brought a different sound to the band. Um, they brought a bit of a funk element to it. And they brought the also the element of having two lead singers that traded off within songs and also took certain songs of their own. Now, Ian, um, you're big on uh, the Queen catalog. What was going on with Queen in 74? So Queen followed up their solid, great debut album, Queen, Queen, with Queen 2. When Queen 2 comes out, now you start seeing these elaborations of these really grander, very proggy, you know, they've continued on their route, but still very heavy um, songs. You know, you've got songs like Seven Seas of Rye and Ogre Battle, which are just monster, monster tunes. Anybody that's any kind of a Queen fan will, you know, they will cite these songs verbatim without too much issue as these monumental songs from the back catalog. Then you have more well-known songs that have come across that almost all of us know from being radio played at one point or another. You have Killer Queen. You have uh, Stone Cold Crazy. You also have songs like Brighton Rock and then Flick of the Wrist. I mean, these are songs that were concert staples for the band all the way through because of the intensity that they had and the attitude that they pervade coming up through so when you know once you get through the early years you know when when things start to progress later on they had a lot more pop pomp and circumstance with with material that they presented even though they still did it in a very heavy and a grand way but all of this older material that came from these earlier albums just stayed with them all the way through the years you know whenever they would perform and that was something that really helped to catapult them big especially within the hard rock and metal community
74 Montrose. Last album with Sammy, uh, from what you read, apparently Ronnie Montrose was a fickle, fickle individual. Um, I don't know if he had uh, personal demons or if he was, you know, secretly self-destructive when it came to stuff. But um, really, this album, for the most part, is a departure from the first album. The first album is just a solid slab of rock all the way through from beginning to end on this album paper money you really only have the title track paper money and then the song i got the fire which i got the fire was a riff that sammy came up with and you know just as of recently reworked into a new song with uh the circle um after you know speaking with you know, montrose uh you know ronnie montrose's uh you know estate just to let them know hey listen I'm going to reuse this riff. I just wanted to make sure I had your, you're okay with it. You know, the, the, the interesting thing on what you guys just presented here was you mentioned I Got the Fire, and you also mentioned the Queen song uh, Stone Cold Crazy. Iron Maiden covered that I Got the Fire on the single back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Like you mentioned, Metallica was Stone Cold Crazy. So a lot of those songs, it's exemplifying how they're the stepping stones of these later bands that came around in the late 70s and early 80s. And they're pulling from these bands. Now, in 74, there was an interesting uh, development in the Thin Lizzy camp. They released their fourth album, Nightlife. And that was the first album that uh, newcomers Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson on guitar uh, were involved with. Brian Robertson ended up replaced Fast Eddie Clark in Motorhead, you know, about 10 years later. What do you know about Thin Lizzy and what was the status of that band in 74 with the Nightlife release? I know that Eric Bell, the original guitar player, had gotten very burnt out, um, actually had a little bit of a, uh, of a mental breakdown uh, mid-show. You know, he admits himself it probably was a combination of touring fatigue, uh, maybe a little bit too much partying, and just, you know, one of those situations where you have somebody that's not comfortable in the the spotlight you know having the success at all of any kind thrust on you sometimes can be a burden so the influence of bands like uh the allman brothers Leonard skinnard and wishbone ash 
was something that kind of had been a point of interest for Phil Linett. So he goes out and he's trying to, you know, recruit these guys for this band. And, you know, this young kid from Scotland, Brian Robertson comes in and he's got all this vim and vigor and, you know, bad attitude player and everything else and gets up there and jams. When he meets Scott Gorham, who just happened to be in England on accident because his family member, his, his sister's boyfriend was actually in the band Supertramp, said, why don't you come on out and see if you can audition for a spot in the band. And even though that kind of fell through while he was in England, ended up finding out that Finn Lizzie was looking for a guitar player, did a little quick study on who the band was when did the audition when he walked in Phil kind of looked at him and saw how he looked with that California good looks and the long hair and said, that guy looks like a rock star. He's in the band. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it just happened to be good fortune that he had all, you know, he had excellent chops too, and they all got along. So that was the establishment of that classic Finn Lizzy lineup. So good stuff. Uh, just to finish wrapping up on our recap of bands from last week, the last one I want to mention is Aerosmith. Uh, 74, Get Your Wings album comes out March 74. But the significant thing with this is it's the beginning of the relationship with Jack Douglas, their producer. You know, Jack was the man behind the board on those follow-up albums that we're going to rediscover as the 70s moves on. So uh, Metal Walt. It's 1974, and there's a lot more bands coming around with releases. Uh, what do you got? Who was uh, who was new to the scene in 74? Well, I think you, you start at the top with the heavy hitter and uh, the de- debut album of Kiss, uh, followed by their second release, Hotter Than Hell, later in the year. I mean, I think everybody that is a fan of rock and metal knows the first Kiss album. I mean, it is really what was the foundation of the band. I think, um, you know, you just go right down the list uh, and there's songs that, you know, you, you could recite these in your sleep. Probably for any musician has played these songs starting out. And, you know, again, are, are songs that, you know, 50 years later in the band's repertoire. Yeah. Uh, you know, from Strutter to Firehouse, Cold Gin, Deuce. 100,000 years in Black Diamond. album clocking in here is a two you know a two lp a two side lp you know 10 songs with all those classics clocking in at 35 minutes and 11 <laughs> seconds is, is amazing right 
I think also what was interesting about that one was um, I, I believe it was the the only one um, with the cover album being in, let's say, the makeup that they're the only time that they had that particular makeup for the debut. And then I think they tweaked maybe uh, some of the designs, especially on Peter Chris, uh, that he had a different uh, face face uh, afterwards. Yeah. And Gene didn't have the bats or he had the That's upside correct. Upside down bats, or it wasn't the one the the uh, look that we're all familiar with. Yeah, and then I think later in the year, uh, October came and they released the second album, uh, Hotter Than Hell. Um, this one, if you recall, the cover had sort of a Japanese Asian influence on there, um, and it just tells you their let's say their link to that uh, Japanese culture and that crowd, which was very big for them in the seventies. Um, again, this is another album. You think about it from Got the Shoes, Parasite, Hotter Than Hell, you know, watching you and even really cool, let's say, lesser known tracks such as Strange Ways. I mean, again, they cover it all here. You know, again, short, good, crisp songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think that, you know, to see, you know, two, you know, de- two different two debut albums in, in the same year that that have that much strength, man, that just put those guys on the map. also a year where you saw them let's say as more of a support act for tours and um but i think they prompted very quickly within a year or two into being sort of you know mid-size hall and even maybe some arena size uh, capacity you know by 75 they were playing all the big places so they really went from you know a whole lot of nothing in 73 up to the big time by 75 yeah, and I think it was also the mystique of the band was important at that time in the formative year. You know, I mean, yes, Alice Cooper, um, and to a degree, I'm certain some, certain other bands, maybe a David Bowie or somebody like New York Dolls, you know, they were wearing the makeup and the costumes and things of that nature, but nobody brought it to the level like this, where, again, there was, you know, all you could really learn about the band was through billboard ads in the cities and maybe through, you know, rock or metal magazines or newspapers. And it was the mystique where, you know, all the little things like, uh, you know, uh, they signed a contract in their own blood, to Gene having a uh, part of a cow's tongue stitched into his mouth to him really making the blood as he spit it out. 
you know, and that was a, a big draw, I think, which created the the spark in the merchandising because it attracted not just music fans, but it attracted kids. If you think about where the band went in terms of their image and how they commercialized themselves as a brand within three or four years, this was really the beginning of it. Well, uh, another band that came around in 74, one of my favorites, uh, Rush. Great band, debut album, just like Kiss. A lot of these songs found a home in their live set for the like the first half of their career. Working Man, In the Mood, What You're Doing, you know, Finding My Way. Those were all some staples. Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and John Rutsey, the original drummer. Walt, what's your take in your uh, interpretation of Rush in 74? Well, first of all, I think it's their, um, being their debut album, I think it has the most of their their catalog, the most straight ahead, let's call it garage rock sounding songs you're going to get. Um, really cool, just chunky riffs and grooves, you know, neat fills on the drums and some, some good melodies in there. Um, and I think this was probably the one and only album where you really fully got that sound. And I'm not even saying that that was a, a direct result of Neil Peart coming in um, after this. I just think it was, you know, the formation of the band of Getty and Alex probably writing together as as kids. And, um, you know, this was sort of the debut material and the sound that they were developing in their, you know, basements and the churches and the places they were playing up in, in, the, in the Toronto area around, you know, that 72, 73 period. know that they hit the road hard that year on, 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 as a support act. I know they were, I think, pretty big in the Midwest in that first year. They got a, a lot of radio airplay on the first album out in Cleveland. So I think they'll always have a, a, a soft spot for that town, really giving them a chance. Um, and I think, you know, when you listen back to this album and when most fans think Rush, you know, they don't really think this album. And perhaps maybe aside from Working Man, you know, it's not something that um, an average Rush fan will, you know, look back at. But uh, really, really strong material and definitely, you know, something that, uh, you know, is, is a memorable piece. I think even on their their uh, R40 tour a couple of years ago, um, if anybody saw that, they actually did that tour where they worked chronologically backwards and they ended their show by stripping the stage down to make it look like they were playing in a little school hall. And um, they ended the show with um, a little medley of some of the tracks, including Working Man, and I believe What You're Doing, um, amongst uh, some of the other tracks. 
to end the show. And that's how it ended. And, um, you know, I think that was a really, really cool way of them recognizing, you know, not only their 40 years, but the importance of the roots of the band in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to interject and say, you know, the, the one thing that I can definitely say about the debut album from Rush. Yes, it's definitely their most straight ahead rock, hard rock sounding album. Fly by Night still has its moments. You can see where the, the moments continue, but the progressive moments start to creep in bigger and bigger as time goes on. But that just signifies the ultimate in the fact that Rush was the ultimate progressive rock band because they started off and they just progressed to a whole other level by the time they were done. And that's why I think they have such a devout following of fans, uh, you know, that, I mean, they just, there's nobody that's, you know, Gene Simmons said it best, he goes, there's no other band that sounds like Rush. And um, what other bands are coming around in 74? Well, the first one of significance was at the end of 73, Rob Halford joins Judas Priest as their vocalist. In 74, they released their debut album, Rockarola. Now, most fans of Judas Priest, most fans of hard rock and metal in general, it's kind of an underwhelming album. There's really only a couple pieces that kind of stand out or that kind of give you that maybe a snapshot into what may be coming. Um, the song Rockarola uh, tends to be something that's a little popular with some of the older fans. Um, and then they also had uh, Run of the Mill, which has been, uh, I think they actually redid it. Um, it was a, a, a European uh, live uh, import that they had done a couple number of years ago. But now you're starting to see this significant change 
in what's starting to, what is occurring within the hard rock and ultimately heavy metal world with this band forming. The other band, out of the ashes of free, uh, divert off from the band Mata Hoople with Nick Ralphs, you have Bad Company coming around. And they released their self-titled album. And anybody that's a fan of good old rock or good old hard rock can't get enough moving on, rock steady, ready for love, and their signature song, Bad Company. I mean, the first album is like a greatest hits album right off the gate. Yeah. I mean, they're just a, a solid, solid, great rock band. Paul Rogers, one of the best vocalists in the history of rock music. They just come out with a with a with a banger that year. So I mean, this is you know seventy four really is it's one of those key years in the building blocks of hard rock and heavy metal as we're going forward. So now, uh, Wald, I know you're a big Priest fan. What's your take on the Rock and Roll session? Yeah, I think um, again, I think this is another one that um, you know it definitely has its moments. I think um, if you give it a deep listen, you'll 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 hear some different things in there that maybe you know um if you rediscover it you're gonna say hey this is this is pretty cool right you got some longer songs out in there um i mean as ian just mentioned run of the mill clocks in at eight over eight minutes um i do recall when they did their epitaph tour uh, about 10 years ago they performed never never satisfied for i think the first time in something like 30 years and i do remember rob halford getting up there and he had the backdrop of the rock and roll album behind him. And he almost had to explain, you know, where the song came from and that it was on a, on that day mm-hmm. album from, you know, at 40 years ago at that point in time. But um, yeah, I think, um, you know, also in thinking of the formation of this band, I mean, again, Rob had really just come on board. Um, and I think there was also maybe some of the material may have been, you know, contributions from the previous singer, Al Atkins, so I think you probably saw a uh, an album that was partially, let's say, put together already. And then Glenn Tipton and Halford joining around this time, they kind of, you know, put this release out. Um, but it was sort of, let's say, the beginning of the foundation of their, their classic lineup, of course, right? And then we know what comes from there, which uh, came out two years later, which was the Sad Wings of Destiny album, which is a, an absolute metal classic. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I think uh, similar to the Rush debut, I think it, uh, you know, it has elements and it's a really cool album, but it's not going to be one of those ones where you're going to look back and you're going to, you know, pick six or seven songs and say, oh, my God, this is a classic album. Unlike the band company album that Ian mentioned has 75 percent of it are, are songs you still hear on the radio today. Uh, all right. Well, Priest, so rock and roll, uh, uh, Scorpions. They're releasing uh, Fly to the Rainbow in 74. Uh, nothing too special with that. Same thing with like some of these early pre-songs and early Kiss songs. They really became what they were when those live albums came out by each band. But that first Scorpion, that Fly to the Rainbow, such tracks, Speedy's come in. They Need a Million's a pretty cool song, but it's... In my in my eyes, it sounds a little dated. Blind of the Rainbow to me, I mean, it's still a little obscure. They're kind of that blend of they're pulling in some psychedelic and some kraut rock. Um, they got you know a little bit of the you know the early hard rock that's that's coming around. A lot of folky stuff gets tossed in in between. It's not 
is it the worst album? No, it's it's definitely a stepping stone, I think, to this like speedy coming. And at this point, you now have Yuli Roth has taken over the reins as the second guitarist along with Rudolph Schenker in the band. And on the other side, Michael Schenker has now left and he has established himself with UFO releasing phenomenon, which comes right off with, you know, you've got two of the classic songs from these guys, rock bottom and Dr. Doctor right on this first album with Schenker really setting a different direction and course for the band. Um, There's a couple of other good ones on there. Oh my too young to know and queen of the deep. You know, these are some good solid rock, hard rock songs that they're doing they too are in a little bit of a flux with this album though there's still a lot of this um kind of space rock that they were doing and a lot of the blues rock element still but it is still one of those great albums from this time period and this is something to uh, you know a perception to keep is this we're talking 1974 so you have to think in that reference when you hear these songs and these riffs and the way they were recorded what it was at the time to hear something like that. That's a game changer. Metal Walt, Scorpion fan or just, um, I remember last week you didn't have much to comment on him. Still no comment. Uh, again, I think um, I'm more of a, you know, later seventies, early eighties um, Scorpions fan. I mean, I can certainly appreciate, you know, uh, the Uli John Roth material, you know, that's a little bit more, um, let's say, uh, trippy and has a little bit more of a, a groove to it. Um, but again, I, I have to be honest and say I'm not fully, haven't been fully immersed in that catalog and that era. Um, but I do know that, um, you know, it is it is cool and it's memorable amongst, amongst the fans. I think even on their, their last couple of tours, they did a little four or five song medley um, with some of the material there. And, uh, and yeah, I do know Willie John Roth tours on his own and does his own Scorpion show where he performs only material from this era. That's fair. I respect that take on the Scorpions and being a fan of all their eras. You know, great stuff. Scorpions, uh, fucking love them. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, Ian and Metal Walt are going to give us a little snapshot on what's going on in the basements and garages around the world as new bands are going to debut in 75. I'm the Vernomatic. You're listening to The History of Metal, the year 1974, on Metal Mayhem ROC. of the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast. Vernomatic here, inviting you to get those horns up and to join us live Monday night, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time for Metal Mayhem ROC Live. We crack the vaults open and play the best of the metal from the last 50 years. Get in the chat room, meet other bangers from around the world, send me a request, and I'll get it on for you. It's Metal Mayhem ROC Live with me, the Vernomatic, Monday nights, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on netmetalstation.com. 
This edition of Metal Mayhem ROC is brought to you by Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Visit our lunch cart in the College Town District at Strong Memorial Hospital or hit up the late night weekend location at the corner of Monroe Avenue and South Goodman. Look us up at MRVSVending.com for catering, pricing, and availability. That's Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Now, back to Metal Mayhem ROC. Welcome back to Metal Mayhem ROC. Tonight, we're in episode two of the history of heavy metal, the year 1974. Now, guys, uh, we've discussed some of the major bands that have started in the early 70s and have gained momentum in 74 and some new bands that have debuted in 74. Ian, what was on the horizon? What kind of bands were forming in garages and basements across the world that would eventually come around and show their face in 75 and beyond taking a peek into the future. Well, some real, real good ones are actually coming. You have Crocus getting their start. There was a uh, little known uh, hard rock band, early heavy metal band from the Canada area by the name of Moxie came out. Uh, Helix, another Canadian metal band, makes their debut that year. They finally get their their stuff going. Uh, there's a band out of Irving, Texas called Point Blank, which came around later on, 81, had a nice little single with the song yep. Nicole. Um, made some noise for a couple of years there, but they were on the heavier side of the Southern rock uh, vibe a little bit closer to maybe uh, Blackfoot versus Leonard Skinnerd. Um, the Ramones, they got themselves going there, finally taking some inspiration from the Dolls and any of the other noise that was coming from the Stooges out in Detroit. Praying Mantis, the old new wave of British heavy metal band, they got their their starts going just like Raven did. And then over in San Francisco. Dave Menachetti was brewing things up and got yesterday and today, which would eventually become Y&T started. So, I mean, there was a lot of really, really good bands that were getting their feet wet and ready to uh, take the next steps within the next year or two. So, Interesting thing on this is it's all the way around the globe. You know, Crocus is uh, Switzerland. You, you got the Canadian bands with Helix and Moxie. You go down to the uh, T for Texas and point blank, um, you know, Raven, Praying Mantis, the, you know, they, they were, like you said, major players in the soon-to-be late 70s, early 80s, new wave of British heavy metal movement that we'll touch on. And, you know, then you got Y&T coming up from the ashes of uh, Ashbury Park in San Francisco what we're doing here is trying to establish the fact that, Hey, it may have eventually ended up being with leathers and spikes and, you know, banging your head and all that. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it didn't start that way, but the attitude and the roots and the philosophy was still there. Metal Walt, any, uh, any other bands, you know, they were forming or coming around, uh, around 74, 75. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, heading out of 74, you also had some existing artists that maybe were were looking for a career change. And I'll mention a few because it definitely had a direct impact 
on, um, you know, the formation of, let's say, newer or um, new bands forming in 75. So um, one that comes to mind was the Amboy Dukes. Uh, in 74, they did release material. And I do know that uh, the song Great White Buffalo uh, was on that uh, last and final album. But this was also the end of that period, which prompted Ted Nugent to go solo, in which he released his debut solo album in 1975, which we'll cover at another time. Um, going back to the connection uh, of Deep Purple, I think there's a couple important points here. Ronnie James Dio, who was at the time really an unknown, um, had been kind of hanging around this band called Elk from, let's say, the early 70s. And this was a very different kind of band. It kind of covered a little bit of more like, you know, kind of basic general rock. There were some horns in there and some honky-tonk piano and some things of that nature. Um, but as Roger Glover exited that Mark II lineup, um, Ronnie James Dio played on a Roger Glover album, a solo album of sorts. And I think that gathered the attention of Richie Blackmore, who had heard it, because Glover and Blackmore are obviously you know, sort of, um, you know, they were, they were not in the best of light in that period. So as it comes about, this became actually, let's say, the, the spark that initiated discussions amongst the camp of Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio, which, event, which eventually put Rainbow on the map. So they, their debut album was 75. Um, and I think the other one that's worth calling out is you think about also with Deep Purple, is with uh, Gillen and Gover leaving, um, you know, something that's maybe, you know, flies at least in America a little bit less under the radar is the Ian Gillen band. But boy, they put out some strong material from the mid-70s, probably up until the early 80s. Um, and he had a really formidable lineup that had some solid players in there. And um, that was also the formation of the Ian Gillen band at 75. So definitely sort of out of some of the morphosis of the ends of some bands, and lineup changes came changes that eventually you would see realized in either new solo artists or let's say new bands forming in 75. All right. Well, you, Hey guys, that, that that's fantastic. Cause that's a pretty much a little bit of a teaser of what's going to be happening in 1975. Like Ian, like you mentioned, as these years are going by from 73 to 74, the, the, the releases and the involvement in this scene doubled and it gets almost doubles again as we go into the 75. Anything you guys want to add to this uh, little commentary before uh, we get going for the night? I think for, for as you had mentioned, for us uh, with our recall and uh, you know any little bit of, of data that we you know needed to, to brush up on, we've touched quite a bit on a lot of material. So anybody that's going to be listening, they're going to have an opportunity to, to try to get themselves at least acquainted with what's going on. Because like you mentioned, going forward, all of these bands are going to be doing a lot more great things. And there's a lot more great bands that are going to be coming along with them. So it's getting exciting. It certainly is. And things are getting real exciting. So that's it for tonight. Again, I invite you to visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. You could listen to episode one of this series, 1973, 
And you can also download and listen to all the past episodes that we've put together. We're close to about 75 in the two and a half years that we've been doing this. So I invite you to check some of our other content out, leave a review, subscribe, that kind of stuff. Don't forget Monday nights, the Metal Mayhem ROC live radio show on thatmetalstation.com. Find all the information by going to the website. For my co-hosts tonight, Ian O'Rourke from the band Motorlord and Metal Walt from New Jersey. I'm John the Vernomatic Verno, and you've been listening to The History of Heavy Metal, 1974. We'll see you next week, folks. And always remember, keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE TV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.